Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson. In this episode, I went around Boston Fig and interviewed a couple of people about their games and the convention itself. But before we get to that, an update on the design contest. So round one is over, the judging is in, and I've calculated the scores. Only the top 30 games will be moving on to round two, so I'll be releasing that list um, later today and sending out emails to all the contestants and organizing feedback, which will probably take at least a couple of days because there's over a thousand feedback forms I have to organize and email out to 87 entrants. So it might take a little bit, but it's a great list of games. I'm sad that I couldn't let more through, but there's limitations on the time of the judges to get everything judged for round two so we can move on to round three. So look for that later today, and enjoy the episode. I'm here at Boston Fig today, and we have Tim Blank with us, who is the Vice President of Tabletop Curation. How's it going, Tim? Doing well, Chris. How are you? Pretty good. Just starting my rounds for interviews, so it's I have energy now. We'll see how it goes. So what can you tell us about this year's Boston Fig? Um, so this year we had a lot of, uh, we made a lot of progress from last year. We had about 35% more games uh, apply this year, and we cut down our showcase by a little bit, so it was really competitive, uh, but I feel really good about the 48 games that we have here and that we're showing, uh, excuse me, 40 games that we have here and we're showing, um, and it seems like from looking at the audience that they're all enjoying themselves a lot as well. Yeah, you got a good crowd. I, I arrived a bit late. Was it Did it start pretty early and just people come in, or was it a slow start this year? Uh, it started at 9 o'clock, and I wasn't expecting to see a lot of people until about 10, but we did have a really good crowd come in at 9. Um, nowhere near what it is now. I'm sure you can hear in the background that there's, there's probably 500 people um, in the immediate vicinity of us right now. Um, but, yeah, it... Uh, it started off really well and it just keeps it looks like more people have been coming in throughout the day so what's it like organizing something like this like this is different than because it's kind of a competition to get in but you have 40 winners so it's really it's a lot of organizing for the event itself too yes it is so I do more than just the deciding who the winners are I do a lot with the logistics to make sure that the games that are being shown off have everything that they need that the designers know what they're doing uh, and just have all the information that they need but it really it's a months long process and and when I say months I mean like nine months we usually start in January or February every year and the show happens in September um, and a lot of my work really get goes into overdrive in March through July because that's when we're accepting the submissions that's when I'm getting my curators together to review the submissions and then of course playing the games to decide which are the 40 best games that we want to show off and you said it was uh, you had less winners this year because last year it was 48 and this year it's 40 yes last year we had 48 um, and then this year we cut it down a little bit um, to help things feel a little bit more special um, but also to for the 40 games that are in here to give them that much more of a highlight so they're not just 
a game that's in the middle of almost 50 games. You know, it, it took a little bit of work for a game to get in here. So for listeners that might be gearing up for next year's Boston Fig, what can you give them as advice for, like what games are you looking for? Uh, so there are three things that I look for when we're looking for games. And I have a host of judges. I have usually about 50 curators every year that get together and we look at the games. But the big things we're looking for are innovation. We want to see a game that is new and unique, either has new mechanics, uh, new components, some kind of theme that you don't see often. That Those show really well at an indie game fest. Um, we also look at the designers. We want to show off, for, for many of our designers, Boston Fig is the biggest thing that they'll do with their game. We have those father-daughter teams that have been working on a game for three years, and they have a booth right next to a designer who is now publishing their 30th design. And that's a big thing that I want to show off, that indie games are not just the same designers over and over again. It might be those two individuals that have never really gone to a game convention, let alone showcase that one. And I, I want them to have a space at Boston Fig as well. And then, of course, just fun. We want games that are going to be fun, that are going to show well, um, and that the audience is going to come here and leave and say, darn, I wish I had more time to play this game or check out that game. Or uh, a lot of these games aren't published yet, and we always hear from audience members that they want to buy these games. So we're, you know, we're pushing the designers to give out their information when the, uh, for when the game is actually published and the audience members can buy them. Um, so yeah, innovation. Um, opportunity and fun are the three things that we're looking for. Cool. Well, that's about all our time. Any contact info for you or Boston Fig? Uh, yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at TimMakesGames, all one word. Um, and Boston Fig is at Boston Fig on Twitter and also BostonFig.com. Next year, the uh, tabletop curation submissions will likely open in March and close in April, so keep an eye out there. You can also sign up for Boston Fig's uh, newsletter and you'll get some information about uh, curation opening there as well. Okay, thanks for talking with me. Thank you, Chris. And I'm here with... Alex. And Victoria. Wait. Wait, what did you just say? <laughs> <laughs> I'm keeping this all in. So Alex and Victoria, you might know from the last two contributor episodes, they did their conversations. I still, we should trademark that, really. Yeah. <laughs> but we're here at Boston Fig, and they brought their game, Gladius. How are you enjoying Boston Fig? Is this your first year here, or your first year presenting? Yeah, this is our first year here and presenting. Uh, we really like it. I don't know, it's kind of a really cool environment, and a lot of our friends are here, so it's nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, what's really cool about it is that there it, it's cool seeing all of the other indie games out there. I feel like this is the one place where everything is curated and collected, and so in addition to demoing, walking around and seeing what everybody else is doing is very inspiring. Is is this your first time to Boston? I'm assuming no, because from New York, you must have wandered here eventually, right? We were here for PAX. And, we were here for and PAX. We took vacations here. Yeah. Yeah. It's, we like Boston. It's a great city. <laughs> Good to hear. So how is Boston Fig so far with demoing? Is it 
been a good reception. I just played it. It's a great game. First time I got to play it after knowing you for almost a year now. So <laughs> glad you finally got to play it. That that's the success really of, of Boston <laughs> Figure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's been good. People here are like eager to play games and excited to play games. And there's like this neat voting system. So like everyone's like thinking at least on like a higher level about it. Like, hmm, who am I going to spend my vote yeah. on? So it kind of like changes the play test a bit where it's like people are more engaged, I think, instead of just walking in. It's like, oh, tell me about your game. But I, I kind of like it. I don't mm -hmm. know. It's nice. Everyone's been nice to us. So yeah. any con where everyone is nice to us is a good yeah. con in my book. <laughs> it's also very different because sometimes when you go to other conventions, you just try to go to the free to play area or you try to buy a table or something like that but here we are being featured so it makes you feel more special and people people want to come by and check out your game oh the featured games are the reason people here unless they went to the video game section upstairs which doesn't have air conditioning by the way just Ooh. so you know <laughs> yes <laughs> more in the board games yeah so what was what was it like getting into boston fig so i was one of the judges so i knew it from that side and i entered i maybe four years ago now but so how was it for you guys entering i guess it's me i'm the one who applied yeah that's true <laughs> Uh, but the process was, um, what actually happened was, I think we submitted a video, and uh, that part was pretty simple. And then what happened was, we had to submit a prototype of our game, uh, and we were going to Italy at that time for research and vacation. <laughs> uh, we actually bought this gladiator helmet right here from Italy. Uh, and uh, we shipped the prototype over, and then we got a lot of great feedback on our game. And then oh, you we forgot were, the best part. We what? didn't have a printer, so we couldn't print the rule book. So we had to ship the prototype, and then I had to call my dad in Las Vegas to ship the rule book separately yeah. and pray that they both arrived and that the judges would be able to put two and two together mm -hmm. to like use them together. But it worked out, so yeah. <laughs> I'm happy about that. Mm -hmm. But I would definitely encourage anyone who has an indie game that they're developing to enter this contest for one, for feedback, and then two, the opportunity to be in the showcase is really exciting and I haven't seen any other festivals or conventions that offer this. It is it is a really fun time. I remember when I was here, I did seven straight hours running two games simultaneous. Wow. It was I had no voice the next day. It was very rough, but great feedback. So let's talk about your game a bit. That's what I usually talk about. Right. Sure. So it is called Gladius and why don't you describe it for me? Yeah, so Gladius is a two to five player card game where you're basically members of the Roman elite trying to bet and rig the gladiatorial games in your favor. It takes place over the course of three rounds and basically you bet, you play cards that manipulate the gladiators, either helping them or hurting them or doing other tricky things. And then at the end of three rounds, the player with the most money wins. That's basically the gist of it. You just played it. What was your impression? <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Um, the, the very first, like, there's always that overwhelming when you learn a game, which every single time I sit down to a game that's not a single rule, I feel like, what did I get myself into? It's always fine after the first turn, but it's all, I always get that feeling. But, like I said, after the first turn, it's play your cards, try to manipulate things, which I really enjoy that kind of hidden allegiance system, which is in a lot of games I'm working on now. But, so you can, there's a lot of underhandedness, and is it gonna be, is it gonna help, is it gonna hurt? It's really interesting, plays quick, easy to understand, and I was so close to winning. Yeah, so close, so one close. bad bet. <laughs> It's a lot of fun, yeah. And the art looks great. You said it's not quite done yet for the art. What else? What else are you working on for that? We, well, so we have about eighty percent of the art done, and we're waiting for the last few gladiators and character cards to be finished. And then my sister's the graphic designer, and uh, she's just finishing up some things. So she primarily does graphic design for web. So you know, you pick up things when you create card games. Like you can't have borders because uh, if there's a drift on the card, people are going to know which card is which. 
those are the remaining things. And then after that, we're going to... Pretty much done. Yeah. Hopefully launch in March on Kickstarter. That's the goal. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for talking to me, and good luck with the Kickstarter. Any contact info or anything for people to check out the game if they want to get on a mailing list or anything like that? Yes. So uh, our Facebook page, our Twitter, and our Instagram are all Gladius Card Games, so you can find us there. And then you can also sign up for our mailing list on there to get more updates on when we plan to launch our Kickstarter and see more art and different conventions that we go to. Anything else? Uh, if you really like art updates, I think like follow at Gladius Card Game because even if you don't care about the game, it's cool to see like a sketch go to a like fully completed work of art, especially with our artist. She's so good about doing that, so yeah. uh, I'd highly recommend it. <laughs> cool. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I am here with Matt Sorrentino, creator of That's Wizard. And how is Boston Fig going for you so far? It's been a busy day. It's been absolutely awesome atmosphere here. I love it. There's just so much energy, all the creators, all the players. It's been incredible. Is this your first year presenting here? It is. It's my first year attending as well, so this has been an awesome experience. It's, it's a very unique event as far as playtesting and demoing and stuff goes, isn't it? Absolutely. I've never seen this amount of just enthusiasm for indie board games in, in a single contained area. It's, it's awesome. It is really great. So, let's talk about your game a little. So, that's Wizard. How would you describe it? So, in a nutshell, Thus Wizard has two parts. One is a, a mini deck building aspect where you're going to pick seven spells to be in your spell book out of a total of 28. And that's one part of the game that players really enjoy. They can customize their own set of spells. But for players who have never played before, we start with a bunch of pre-made decks, which is what we're doing here at Boston Fig today, so that people can enjoy the game right away. Um, the basic premise of the game is that you're going to be casting spells at the same time as your opponent, and you're going to use a resource called power, which is basically like mana, and that's what you use to cast your spells. And each turn you're going to pick a spell from your hand and use a certain amount of power to cast that spell. And there's an advantage for using less power rather than more in the sense that you will actually get to read your card before your opponent. So smaller spells get to go before bigger ones. And then the cornerstone of the game are two special cards. One is Focus, which is what you'll play when you run out of power or mana, um, and that, then you're going to need to get all that back. And the other one is Counterspell, and, and Counterspell is where things get really interesting because when you play it, if your opponent played a spell, their spell has no effect. They don't even get to read the text on the card, and they've wasted the resource that they use to cast it. Um, but it does cost you a little bit of your own health to play that. So the game comes down to a real psychological game of playing, well, should I be casting my own spells or should I be on the defensive and trying to counter them? And we play best two out of three matches for that reason, so it really becomes a very, as a head game of, I know that you know that I know we're gonna do this next round and you kind of have to start second guessing and, and enjoying that. And they can modify their decks slightly between rounds too, right? Absolutely, yes. There's a, a component called the sideboard, which is you're going to take two of your spells and put them face down, and you're going to be able to swap those in and out in the best two out of three matches so that there, you can, can keep an element of surprise for the later games. Maybe you pick your most powerful spell and, and put it aside in the beginning matches so you can surprise them with it later for that win, or maybe you just put aside some spells that aren't necessarily useful for the combinations that you're trying to make. And I, I got to play this at a playtest, um, I think last month is when I played. Right. It's, it's really nice. I mean, the two-player battle card game is a very big genre, but I think this it has a unique aspect of using your dial to set your power, and it plays really, really fast, but not in a hectic way. You know, like, 
I make my plan, we do it, and you get right to it, which some games can really drag on in other, uh, other games of the genre, so it's really nice like that. I noticed that you have two games going right here, so it's a, it's a small footprint relatively compared to full board games. It looks like you have three setups you could do, so how's that been working out for you as far as being able to play multiple games at a time? Is that overwhelming? Do you have enough people to cover it? Has that been going well? Do you think you get more people because there's no waiting? So we've definitely had some backup because there is a lot of attendees here, which is great. Um, and I've told some people that, you know, to come back later and some people will stand in line or actually sit down before they've even learned what the game is because they know that there's a crowd. Um, we have three setups here and I have three helpers who have been playtesting with me for years and they, they're all very experienced at the games. And it's, it's been very successful. We usually spend about five minutes explaining the basic rules of the game, overseeing the very first cards that they play and after that they're off on their own and playing and really having fun so yeah it's a nice thing about card games in general is you can put a lot of the rules on the cards so there is a low teach at the beginning and it's just explain a rule here or there but for the most part they're just reading their hand and playing absolutely I, the key to this game is just reading everything carefully we really refine the wording to a sense that there's certain keywords there's certain icons and everything kind of is very refined to the fact that if you fully read your card out loud to your opponent pretty much anyone can play the game very effectively it's not a complicated game if you read it out awesome so any plans for this going forward are you looking at Kickstarter or publisher or so we're planning to do self-publish um, and we're going to be taking this to Kickstarter tentatively um, according to my free time will probably be in January so we're trying to finalize different places that will have production made um, so we're pretty excited to bring this out um, definitely follow us on Facebook at that's wizard um, at Twitter for Mana Works games and follow we're, we're definitely going to be out there soon so de definitely look for us well thank you for your time and good luck thank you so much I'm here with Brian Bollinger from Wild East Game Company and we are demoing a game called Slapdown here at Boston Fig. And can you describe Slapdown a bit? I played it and I really enjoy this game. So Slapdown is a deck of 50 cards. There's uh, with shapes and colors. There's uh, 25 pairs. There's five colors, five shapes, and there's two dice. Uh, one has shapes, one has colors. You roll the dice and if it shows up as a square with a uh, red color, then you're looking for the pair of cards that have a red square on them. First player to slap both of the cards gets to take that card. Yeah, it's it's really simple. I played it, oh, it's probably a couple months ago now at one of the Game Makers Guild meetups. But it's just, it's one of those speed games that's just so simple to explain and gets that frantic energy going as soon as you, as soon as you go. Isn't there also a way you can steal cards from people? Yes, if a co color combination in the shape combination has already been rolled and it comes up a second time, uh, the person who already has the pair has to re-slap it so they can keep it or someone can reach across the table and slap it and steal it from them. And about how long does the game play for this? Uh, typical game either goes to seven points or until all the cards are gone. If you're playing to seven points, a game is maybe five to ten minutes long at the most. If you're playing until they're gone, it might last 15 or 20 minutes. And what's the player count? Um, it's limited to the number of people you can put around a table, but we, we generally say about two to eight people. So this is, this is a very fast game. It's the kind of thing that will attract people by a bunch of people slapping a table and yelling. So how has the response been at Boston Fig so far? Uh, it's been very good, and most of the people have been polite to each other, but we did have a group, a father and a couple father-son teams, and they just started shoving each other out of the way. It was pretty amusing. <laughs> so you think, do you think that like really brings them in because they see people yelling and slapping and it generates the interest? Or is it harder because people want to sit down and relax? I mean, 
Uh, we don't even have chairs next to our table. So when you walk over, you know you're going to be standing and reaching across the table. But because it's so uh, fast-paced and quick, your adrenaline kind of gets going, and you get into it, and you don't even notice that you're not sitting in a chair. Yeah, I mean, you can't play this sitting, really, unless you were you had a smaller table, at least. Yeah. So does table size affect it? Do you recommend a certain thing, or just that's that's what you're playing with, and that's the variant of the game for your table? Uh, we like rectangle tables better. We played on a round table, but unless you have really long arms, it can be tough to reach across the table. And is this already out? I see boxes here. So is this is this done and out, or is these just pre-production? This is done and out. Uh, it came out in the uh, spring of this year. And uh, yeah, so it's done. So contact info, and where can people buy it? You can buy it at uh, wildeastgames.com, and it is $15. And again, the name is Slapdown. Cool. And any other contact info for following you or just the website? Uh, just the website. This works. Or you could email me or my wife. It's just Brian at Wild East Games or Jill at Wild East Games. Thank you very much. Thanks. I am here with Jamie Bariga, creator of Quick Fight, a legacy game. Okay. Is that what you're showing now? I am. I'm showing not only that, but I'm also showing the non-legacy version, Corporate Raiders, today at the Game Makers Guild Boston table here at Boston Festival of Indie Games. Great. So, this, I'm part of the Game Makers Guild, as many listeners probably know, and this is an interesting situation where we thought we were going to have one table to demo stuff at and ended up with a lot more than that. So, how has this nice orange tablecloth been attracting people? Have you ever been in the showcase itself? I have been in the showcase uh, with actually both of these games, 2012, 20, no, 20, 2014 for Quick Fight and 2015 for Corporate Raiders. So it's good to be back. Good to be back showing it off here at the bright orange tablecloth table. So it, do you feel it's different than when you were in the showcase now that you're over on the edge, although it's you have a whole line of people here. So what's the what are the differences for this type of demo? Yeah, well, so this one is just literally showing it off and answering people's questions about more the Game Makers Guild, less about my games. It's using the, the games as sort of a, uh, as the bait to get them over and get interested in. If they have any sort of inclinations towards game design, you know, then we, then we pounce, then we get them. They're in the trap. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm basically, instead of the goal being to showcase my games, it's to show that my games have come a long way because of the help from the Game Makers Guild and answer questions about that group, get people interested. Cool. So, why don't you tell us a bit about the Game Makers Guild? Sure. So yeah, the Game Makers Guild has been around for, I want to say, four or five years now. We're a gathering of board game creators in the Boston area. And what we do is we meet up about twice a month to show off our games. Uh, a lot of them are early pencil and paper prototypes. Some of them are much further along with professional art and whatnot. But the goal is to get together and play these games with strangers, people who show up to the meetup and other game designers and just get a bunch of feedback. And the feedback allows us to improve our games in a way that we can't just kind of play testing by our lonesome at home. And it is a great group, great group of people, very helpful. I've met a lot of wonderful designers there and non-designers. Some people do just come to play, which I can't fathom not designing, but I mean, they enjoy it, so. It's, it's, 
it's great to have people just show up interested to play like that those just to have people who play board games a lot play your game that are total strangers and willing to give you some cutting feedback man it really makes your game great so what about this game uh, how do you play it yeah so these uh, two games basically use the same engine essentially you have a deck of cards in the center that for corporate raiders represents failing companies uh, specifically employees at failing companies and so you start off with a hand of loyal employees and it's your goal to steal employees from the failing companies to uh, not only uh, just boost your greed which is your fighting power in this game but uh, also to uh, gain money when you lay them all off at the end of the game so the idea here is that you are just trying to be the greediest uh, most money hungry CEO in the world and this game lets you do that in the safety of your own living room cool and you just set up, so you haven't actually had any plays today yet, have you? Correct, correct. Yeah, just just set up at the table. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, thank you for your time. Any contact info if you want to find out more about your game or follow you? Yeah, definitely. Uh, the two games uh, we've got going on, mailing lists for each, are uh, quickfightgame.com and corporateraidersgame.com. Mailing list sign-ups on the front page. And Game Makers Guild contact info? GameMakersGuild.com will have everything you need to learn more about the group and uh, have some resources in case you're interested in game design and just uh, learning about how to make, how to get your games to the next level. Cool. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Chris. You've been the best. I'm here with... Jeff Hyatt, the designer of Naked Truth. And Jeff, how are you doing at Boston Fig today? This is a fantastic convention. I was just telling somebody that the size makes everything accessible. Every table that offers games has players, and it looks like every player finds a seat. Yeah, it's, it seems to be it's just about the right. It's not, it's not too overcrowded. You can't not get through anywhere, but there's open games too, so it's, it seems to be working out just right. So you are also part of the Game Makers Guild. We talked to Jamie earlier, although his interview might be later because the magic of editing. Uh, so how was it presenting your game for the Game Makers Guild? Because like I was talking to Jamie, it's, it's a different setup than having the dedicated booth. You're off to the side there, but you have a big orange tablecloth. So how, how was that? Did it work out for your game? Yeah, actually, it's great. It's right at the end of the room, and uh, people are walking by. They've just done one round, and they end up right in front of our table and are happy to talk. We're, we have three tables in a line, and we have three games. So we can even direct people to the type of game that's most suitable for them. Uh, and the people, the, the visitors are super curious and want to learn both about the games and the guild. Awesome. So let's talk about your game a bit, Naked Truth. So this is actually in the contest, so people might be hearing more about this in the future. But um, yeah, describe your game. First of all, thanks for doing the contest. I. It takes a little effort to uh, put your game out there, but if anybody's designing games, enter them because it's great, a great step to do. So my game, Naked Truth, uh, I, I'm proud of it. I, it's a party game, social party game, uh, casual, somewhere like Cards Against Humanity or like Trivial Pursuit or Pictionary in that you play socially. It's not so much about the win or lose. It's questions. They are... Um, yes or no questions and they're personal questions they're not geography or sports they are about yourself and you there are things like uh, do you pee in the pool 
Have you cheated on a lover? They're, they're meant to be edgy, interesting, where you find out something you didn't know about your group. Everyone answers anonymously, yes or no, so you, everyone is totally honest, and you really do find out um, how many people have X, Y, and Z. Bill, I got to play this in one of the Game Makers meetups, and it's a really interesting take on the party game, because you, you have the deeply personal questions, but because it's anonymous, people answer more or less truthfully. I mean, you never really know. But, and then the, the whole crux of it is you're, you're betting on how many people said yes, right? Yeah, so after people put in their yes or no cards, the reader, before the, so the person who read the question is going to reveal those, but right before they do, you're going to write on your own sheet, how many yeses do you think you're in your group? And you play this with six or more people, so keep it anonymous, and, uh, and you might guess if you have 10 players, when you say, uh, did you lose your virginity before you were 18? You could look around the table, take your mental guess about everybody, and then just write down two or six or whatever you think it is. If you get it right, you get a point for that. And somewhere later in the evening, you might ask people how many points they have so far. And there was always some people are really into winning. But it, the interesting thing about the points is not having more than the other person. It's just who's good at guessing and knowing, intuiting about this group of people. Yeah, it's, it's really the kind of game that gets conversations going more than anything else. And you, you start talking about the questions, about stuff in general, how far off you were from guesses. So it's a lot of fun in that like icebreaker kind of way. So how has Boston Fig been for you otherwise as an attendee? Well, I, I love going around and looking at what's out there. But the biggest thing for me this year, big decision, is it inspired me that I'm going to get a table next year and I'm going to put my game out there. And I... Um, and so I took a lot of pictures of other booths because they all have really good ideas about how to make the booth inviting and accessible. And uh, and I can see that it's a lot of work to even making signs and props, things that make make it fun for the visitors. But I that was my decision, and now I'm putting it here on tape or whatever this is, uh, digital. You have to do it now. Now I'm fully committed. I can't back out. Actually, not just that I made that commitment, but... I'm excited about it. I'm looking forward to it. I think this, you know, whether you're making games for whatever reason, and for me it's a hobby, I this is a great next step for that. I, I presented, I think it was four years ago now, and I really should get to do it again. But it's it's a great opportunity, but incredibly exhausting. Like, is a great crowd here, which is wonderful, but they always want to play your game. There's no breaks. So you really do have to, like, bring a couple people if you even want to walk away and get some food. So, but it, it's a great experience. Uh, you probably won't have a voice at the end of it. But especially if you're doing Naked Truth, it's a party game. It gets people laughing and talking. And that's great for drawing in more people. If you see a group of people laughing, you're going to walk over and see what they're laughing at. Then you have your next group of players. So I think that would really work out well for this this uh, setup. So. Yeah, I was thinking, because my game, you, you can join in any time. Like, you, people can come and go question to question to question. And the rules take... 30 seconds so it, it, I think it does really lend itself now I have it as an over 21 game so I have to filter that appropriately for being here in a, in a family friendly environment so that'll take a bit of work but not too bad and uh, I'll figure out what's the right way to handle that appropriately um, I do I have made it's not finished a kids version and I did it at I have kids I did it at the birthday party uh, questions like 
Do you sometimes pick your nose? And do you forget to flush the toilet? Do you always wash your hands after you use the toilet? And the kids were laughing the entire time. They mostly outed themselves after they answered anonymously, but that was really hysterical too. That sounds like it would work just as well for kids. Yeah. So, any contact info for people to follow you if they want to follow up in your game or see you next year at Boston Fig, hopefully? I, well, I made a website yesterday. <laughs> yes, I did. And, uh, just because I was coming here and I thought, okay, this is a good, good step. So, playnakedtruth.com. And right now, all you can do is put in your email, but I then you'll get all my updates, which won't exactly flood your inbox. But everyone who does it is definitely going to get some kind of a discount thank you thing for me because they're doing it. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for doing this. I am here with... Jesse with Hibernation. So, Jesse, you mentioned that you were here, was it, five years ago now with this same game. So what do you feel the difference is, especially because that was one of the first or possibly the first Boston Fig. So what's, what do you feel the difference is from then to now? Uh, it's, it's quite vast, actually. Um, I had come the year previous, 2012. Maybe that was the first one. Um, and it was it was very small compared to what it is now. It was in a much smaller room. It had like 10 tables. You know, now it really blew up and it's it's really awesome. Um, the scene, the people supporting other indie developers and um, just really being able to network and communicate with all these people about the, my, my upcoming game, my new game here, Hibernation. Um, so yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Awesome. So tell us a bit about Hibernation. How does it play? What kind of game is it? Uh, it's essentially like a deck builder as well as like a resource management kind of game, uh, as well as they're kind of like sort of racing in a sense. Um, but it's not really like other deck builders because there's a lot of alterations. There's much more choices to be had. And um, you're not really stuck with decisions that you've made. You can make alterations as you progress. Um, and uh, there's a lot of uh, opponent interaction as well. Cool. So what's it like having a released game here? Because I know a lot of people are just demoing prototypes, so there's, there's a different feel about it. You're trying to, or able to sell the game. I don't know how much you're pushing it. But so what's the difference there having a published game? Because you did it both ways with the same game. So. Right, yeah, the first time around was great because um, I was promoting a Kickstarter and an Indiegogo. It was kind of changing as it went, um, and I was able to get some money that way, which is great. Um, so yeah, being on the scene was awesome the first time, but being here the second time with the game uh, for sale is, is, is amazing because some people will just come up and say, hey, I've seen this, you know, oh, hey, I played it years ago, can I just grab a copy? And it's, you know, it's, or people will sit down and then, um, you know, and be like, oh, geez, eight bucks, you know, it's totally worth it. Or, you know, just, uh, it's, it's been really awesome because there's a lot of support too. And the people, you know, really give, it seems like a, a different kind of feedback when you've got a complete game as opposed to when you've got one in process. You know, they, they, uh, it's, it's a different feel and it's, it's very satisfying. <laughs> so have you been getting a lot of players? Has it been good for that? Yeah, it's been a very busy day, uh, nonstop. We've honestly had to tell people to come back, you know. Hey, please come back in 15, 20 minutes. You know, we're going to keep rotating. Um, it's been very busy. It's been great. Uh, a lot of people filling up the table, trying to keep, like, five-player games going. It can be from two to five-player, which is great. Uh, it's very diverse. And uh, the game really changes when you're playing for two players to three players to four players to five players because uh, the number of cards that are available as well as people's strategies and, you know, uh, different politics that play in when you're as you're progressing through the game. 
So how's it been for sales? Is, do you think it's worked out? Is it just an extra something to get people in, or how's that working? It's been working really well. Um, it's a lot of the people that play are, are purchasing because um, they're very, very satisfied with it, and which is, you know, which in turn makes me feel satisfied. Just being like, oh wow, you know, I made a good game, you know, like because you think, you know, in your head you did a good game, and you got your friends to play, and you got your family to play it, and you know, you got you want you reach out as far as you can, but then you finally start producing it and selling it, and it's just really nice to hear that feedback and people, you know, telling you how they try to come up with new strategies and how they they played 12 times at home with their friends or groups of friends, and they, you know, came up with something new or different. And it just—it's really great to get that back, and, and you know, hear like, oh, geez, I never thought of it that way. Like, that's a really cool. That's intriguing. Like, I'm gonna do that now, or you know. So, any contact info for you, or where people can buy the game online? Absolutely. Uh, you can check me out at piedraven.com, P-I-E-D-R-A-V-E-N.com, or uh, at Piedraven Games on Twitter. Um, I post there about other indie developers and my own stuff at times. And um, yeah, uh, yeah, please reach out, check it out. We uh, often try to update the site, and there's like some additional rules for uh, advanced play on there. There's um, resources to, to be able to print out some quick reference rule cards. And I'm just going to always be uh, trying to update uh, the new games that I'm progressing on, too. And can they buy the game on the site? Do you have it on Amazon? Is it in retail? It is available through my site as well. And um, I'm, uh, I've gotten it a lot of local stores in Massachusetts, but I'm trying to reach out to distributors and get it more uh, nationwide online. But you can absolutely uh, get it through piedraven.com. Awesome. Thank you very much, and good luck. Thank you very much. I'm here with Diane Sauer from Shooting End Games. And your game you're showing today is? Born to Serve. So, for long-time listeners, you were actually on one of my Metatopia episodes back in November or December, whenever I released it. And I believe you talked about the, the early inspiration for this. So, now it's is it published yet or is it still working its way out? How, what level are you at? It is going to be on, actually on Kickstarter uh, on October 9th. So, from today, it's only a... Less than, like, uh, less than two weeks away, we'll be on Kickstarter. Wow, that is that is very soon. So, listeners, it's well, this is coming out Wednesday, so I think you'll have a week to set up. So, tell us a bit about the game. Okay, well, the game's born to serve. Uh, the good news is that all of the players are superheroes. The not-so-great news is that they're not the world's greatest superheroes. They don't work for the world's greatest supergroup, and they're kind of in this little supergroup in a, sm a small podunk town. The really, really bad news is they just lost the supergroup's government funding, and now they have to go out and get a real job. Um, and there's only one job in the small little podunk town, and that is at the local restaurant for a waiter or a waitress. Now, fortunately, the owner likes the supergroup, or former supergroup as it is, uh, and he says, you know what, you can all try out for the job. You can all work here for one day, and at the end of the day, uh, whoever has the most tips is going to, going to get the job. Now, obviously you wouldn't do this, but some of your former supergroup members might not be above using their superpowers to kind of manipulate the game to make sure that they get the tips, the best tips, and get the job. So, uh, like, what are some of the superpowers? How to, like, what's, what are the mechanics of the game? How do people ruin each other's day? Well, the mechanics of the game are is there's ta there's there's uh, tables in the restaurant which have their three, four, and five seat tables, where where you'll be placing your service markers every round. Okay, the 
There's two types of customers. There's regular customers that come in all the time that the staff know and they know what they're going to tip. Like the old couple that comes in every day and buys the senior special, leaves a $5 bill. So you can expect it. Then there are the unknown customers, which could be somebody that, you know, a group that sits there all day, sipping a cup of coffee and leaves a $3 tip. Or it could be uh, business people out on a meet, you know, trying to impress a client and maybe they leave a fabulous tip. You don't know for sure. So there's also the staff of the restaurant and they're there and, the, and you can maybe ask them to help you and they can help you in some way. And they all have some powers or some abilities of their own. Like a good example is the hostess has a plus three marker to up the tip value by plus three because she can seat somebody, seat a group like in a particularly nice, nice area with a nice view to help you get a better tip as an example. Um, you have 13 service markers. You have your fortress of, fortress of loneliness, which is where you store them. Uh, you take five out every turn and the turns are broken into two phases, the service phase and the scoring phase. During the service phase, you're gonna place your tokens on, on the table or on staff to have them help you. The scoring phase, you're gonna score out the tables that are complete. The ones that are, that are still eating will stay. The ones that nobody helped are going to storm out of there nobody gets the tip and you get a bad Yelp review. Cool. So I noticed that you were at the very front booth here at the front door so how's that been for getting people to come in and play? You really keeping the table full all the time? Oh yeah it's, 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 it's been crazy we really haven't had other than when it first opened when people I guess people weren't up yet <laughs> there weren't that many people in here yet but after like an hour and it filled up. It's been crazy. Yeah. And I noticed, so your setup here, you have the game playing in the background, but then you have sort of a little demo table up front. So has that been working out well for you, that setup? Yeah. That's why we can give people a demo. And if they if they like it, then they hop back to the back table. And, and uh, my husband, Nick, will go and, and teach them the, the game fully. And, and the, the, they can sit down and play it. Cool. Very nice. And this is not your first year at Boston Fig. So how do you, how do you feel this year than other years? Do you think it's growing? Do you think it's hit a nice size because it doesn't seem overcrowded but it's like everything seems full though yeah i think it's very very full full last year was hard well it's hard to judge uh, because it was our first one so we didn't have anything to judge against but now seeing this year um yeah it's it's very it's very full people are really friendly and nice and you know it's it's actually it's really an excellent excellent show and last thing any contact info or um email list signups for people who want to follow the game or follow your company yeah uh, well a few things. First, uh, it's going to be on Kickstarter. Uh, Born to Serve will be on Kickstarter on October 9th. You can go to uh, borntoservegame.com. That will put you to the Kickstarter, which isn't live yet, but you can still click the notify me at launch button, and you can look around a little bit. Um, you, you can follow us on Twitter, uh, shoot, at Shoot Again Games, or on Facebook, Shoot Again Games is our Facebook. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I am here with Dennis Chan, and your game is Frontiers of Soul. Uh, tell us a bit about Frontiers of Soul. Frontiers of Soul is a space civilization worker placement game that has a heavy focus on technology development. Uh, the main, the core part of this game is the technology tree, which changes every game. 
we are basically playing as human factions. Uh, we just discovered how to leave the solar system, and we know close to uh, very little about uh, traveling in space. So as the game goes on, you find new technologies and you build out the technology tree as the game goes on, and the technology tree can come out very different every game depending on what other people pick. So I got a chance to play this, it was a while ago now, so it's a slightly earlier version, but it's, it's not a light game. So what's it like demoing a heavier game at Boston Fig, which like you're really trying to get people through quickly. So have you been playing full games or just shorter demos? How are you working with that? So uh, what I have here is a demo version. It takes about 10 minutes to teach and 15 minutes to play. And it has almost all the elements of the full game. It has the tech tree, which is um, smaller. It has a galaxy board, which is smaller. Uh, you still get the same excitement in taking over other people's systems, in discovering new actions that you have never seen before. You get all that uh, from just a simple 15-minute demo. And uh, interesting enough that you said it is a long game. So this Frontiers of Soul is um, kind of a worker placement 4x genre game. And usually those games takes about four to six hours. And my goal with this game is uh, this is going to take less than two hours and you have the full 4x experience uh, in, in a relatively quick time frame. That's a good point. I should clarify. When I say long, I mean over an hour. Oh, okay. Although I have played like Eclipse for seven hours and I enjoy it, but I don't have time for that as an adult anymore. But so your your goal for this, the full version is under two hours, you said. And yeah, I think that's a good fit. That's, this is a really interesting game. I really enjoy it. I hope to play it again soon. So how has Boston Fig been this year as opposed to previous years you've been here? Uh, so this is Frontiers of Soul is my third uh, Boston Fake appearance. Um, I have done two other games before, but this is the first game that I really poured my design and heart and soul in it. Um, it has full art that I made by myself. Uh, well, the images are taken from just free internet space pictures, but uh, I designed all the, the graphics for it. I have decorations, and it is. I'm very excited. People seem to like it a lot. Uh, it's a lot of energy. I, I even have a sign-up waiting list for the demo, which has never happened before. So, uh, very cool. I'm, I'm very happy. Awesome. Well, last thing, any contact info for people to follow you or learn about the game and its future? Or actually, first, what are your plans for this game? Are you going to Kickstarter, looking for a publisher, or still up in the air? So this is my first um, convention to demo in, and yes, I'm looking for publishers uh, who are interested in this kind of game, uh, and uh, just general public reaction, and which seems to be pretty good. So uh, I, I'm ready to move forward and pitch to different people and go to uh, other conventions the next one will be PAX Unplugged, so I'll be there at the Unpop uh, table. And uh, if you want to follow me, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, just search for Frontiers of Soul, and you should be able to see it. Thank you for your time, and good luck. Right, thank you. I am here with... Karen Royer. And your game is... It's called A Mile in My Shoes. It's an experiential role-playing game. So I'm looking at this, and I see a very big wooden table with what looks like pads for puzzle pieces and a lot of translucent plastic puzzle pieces. So this, 
this looks unique and interesting. So tell me, how does this work? Well, it's actually a platform for um, you to build a game that will tell your story. The way it's set up today, it tells my story, um, which is a story about two sisters, both with children of similar age. Um, they, uh, I wrote, raised a child that had autism, so it's about the sort of the intolerance that I felt when I, he was growing up, and it was the way that I could express my feelings about what happened. But as a game platform, it can be used in a multitude of different ways. These spaces here would come blank, where you would be able to fill in your own artifacts, um, and you could you get all of the equipment that you need to fill these in. Uh, the game tiles would come blank. Right now they have little story snippets on them. Uh, some of the story snippets will say, read more, and then you would go to the journal that would have a little paragraph that would fill in and kind of round out the story a little bit more. And that you would be given instructions on how to do that, how to build that and develop that. And it was inspired because my sister always told me, she always said, you know, you should really write a book about being a parent of an autistic child. And I and I tried, but I'm a little scattered. And I told her I, I just can't write a book about it, but I could write a sentence, right? So Sentences are not hard to write. You can say, I went to school today, or I went to the grocery store. And tell your story one story snippet at a time. These then are like played like Scrabble tiles. You turn them all over. You choose seven. Uh, you turn them over. And then out of those seven, you pick three. And with those three, you build a story. And then the story is told you're sitting with a companion, sharing this experience. Experience. So that's where the experiential role-playing part comes in. Um, and you take turns telling the story back and forth. So if you sat down and played this game right now the way it was built, you would learn all about me and my life, my experiences. If you were building the game, we'd learn about you and your experiences. Educators have come by and suggested they could use it in school. For instance, 10-year-olds, right? They could tell their story in the center portion of the board. And then they would research a civilization or a culture or some other historical event. And they would write about children that were of similar age and the things they were experiencing. Um, therapy, we had some people talk about um, child uh, uh, play therapy, where maybe um, the, chair, the therapist would start out with a blank tile and she would introduce a topic to talk about, and then the child would respond with laying their tiles down, telling their story one tile at a time. Um, and then another suggestion was like as an heirloom thing, right? You tell the story about your history, and it could be a family history or it could be you're the grandparents and you're telling this for your grandchildren. Then you put your things that make the board meaningful to you in there. And then, I don't know, 10 years from now, you've got this thing that like, oh yeah, remember when we played that thing? Let's see what happens again. And because there's this random nature to the story, the story is sort of the same, but it kind of changes too. So it's sort of like memory where, you know, you kind of remember it one way, but then it changes. That That is incredibly interesting. So you have, like creating it is kind of a mix of journaling and scrapbooking, but then playing it is experiencing someone else's story, but also a story building game. 
Correct. Right. Yeah. So that the part that's really powerful that I have found was that experiential sharing of the story. When I had other people playing this game, I had one of my professors. I happen to be a grad student at WPI right now. One of my professors has a young child, and she sat down to play this game. And she said, "I know the background on this. That is about being autistic." And she said, "I'm going to try and play this game as if I'm ignoring the fact that my child is autistic." And she got about halfway through the game, and she got very uptight. You could feel, you could hear it in her throat that her voice got really tight. She kind of got a little teary-eyed, and she's like, "I can't ignore the fact that my child is autistic anymore." And I'm like, "That is exactly the spirit, the experience that I had at about that time period in the game, where you just at some point cannot ignore the fact that you know maybe they've got a learning disability, or maybe they've you know." Um, got something that you didn't expect a, a, a curveball is thrown and you have to somehow assimilate that so then you can tell that in your story in the game. Is this something that you already have released? Are you looking for publishers? What's the plan for this? Well I'm actually looking for publishers. I do have um, this, the, the game is here in Bfig and yeah it's the first time I've been in Bfig so it's kind of exciting. Um, it is in another, it's in uh, different games at uh, WPI in the middle of October. And it is at another game festival in October that I cannot disclose because they've asked not to have any publicity about it. It's a strange way to publicize it. It is really kind of an odd thing, but that one I'm very excited about. It's out on the West Coast. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's a great experience being here and I've really enjoyed it. So this is, it's, different than most of the games here. You have a lot of your traditional, like, I'm a player, I do a thing. So storytelling games in general are unique, but this is, I think, a step more unique than that. So how's the reception been for people coming in, not necessarily looking for this kind of game, although there's a lot of different stuff here anyway. So has it been a good reception for you? Yeah, actually it has been. And and I remember now you asked if it was, I think I am, I did mention it, I am looking for a publisher, right? Yeah. So it's been a very good reception. It's been interesting watching the response of the people coming to see the game. Um, because it it kind of fires their imagination. And I've gotten ideas about, like I had concept of how it would be played, but inevitably they all come come with a different um, aesthetic and they have a plan on how they would play the game and share that with me. So it's been this really terrific communications experience with uh, um, people visiting today as well. So That's great. And so this is your first year ever at Boston Fig. So in general, how do you, how do you like the show? I think it's very exciting. I watching the the kind of emotions that are on people's faces as they come through here. Um, I was up at the digital game section earlier, and the, just the uh, the emotion and that sort of excitement that's in the air. It's very cool. It's a very unique show. I enjoy. It. This is I think my fourth year attending, and I I presented one year. It's it's always it's a great crowd. It's a lot of people that want to just see new interesting games, and this is definitely one of them. So <laughs> that's, that's great. Um, any contact info for anyone that wants to follow you or learn more about your game? Sure. Um, my name is Karen Royer. Uh, my website is www.arundeldesign.com. Um, I am on Twitter at um, Arundelin. Oh, I don't remember. Oh, I'm sorry. It's on my I'll website. check it and put it in the show notes. Yeah, kmroyer at wpi.edu. So KM is a Marie Royer at wpi.edu is a great way to get a hold of me. Thank you very much and good luck. Thank you. I appreciate the interview.
I'm here with Max Seidman. And your game is Continental Drift. Alright, so I see people with unique sheets with little animals on them and they're cutting them up and I am super intrigued by this. So please explain it. Yeah, so Continental Drift is a, pro a prototype by Resonim, uh, our indie game company. And each player, each game is played with one sheet of paper. It's a unique sheet, so it's printed off from a generator, and it's unlike any other one that's been played. And you play with one pair of scissors. On your turn, you cut into the sheet, you cut along three spaces in the grid, and if a piece falls off, you get to claim it. It's kind of like the classic game Dots and Boxes, um, where the last one is the one that matters. So if I make a cut, that's probably not going to take anything, but if my opponent makes a cut into my cut, that might make a piece fall off, and then it's theirs. Each player is trying to collect um, certain, their choice of as many as they can of one of the three basic types of creatures, which are mammoths, raptors, or ostriches, or emus, I guess. Um, and whichever one you get the most of is worth points for you at the end of the game. But players have to be careful, because whichever one they get the second most of is worth minus points for them at the end of the game. They're trying to get as many as they can, but their opponent is almost always going to be kind of forcing them into taking things they don't want. The really exciting part about it, in addition to the unique sheets and the cutting, is that each sheet has one has two to three of 40 special creatures that we've generated. Each one changes the game in some weird way. Um, some of them are straightforward. For example, the plesiosaur uh, is worth points if you get 20 tiles with water on them, because it likes water. Uh, but some of them are more interesting. For example, the saber-toothed tiger over there, when you take it, lets you cross off one of the creatures you've already collected. Maybe one of those ones that you didn't want in the first place and your opponent got you to take. Let me do the narrative, which I completely forgot at the beginning. Sure. It's a hundred million years ago. There is one giant continent, Pangaea, and it's splitting apart, and you're the ones doing the splitting. You use the scissors to make fault lines. That sounds really interesting. So, gameplay-wise, I think I get it. Sounds fun. Sounds pretty simple, easy to pick up. But production, how are you doing this production-wise? Well, that's a good question. It's currently a prototype. I don't really know. Well, just the prototype. Right. Oh, production-wise, for the prototype, um, it's a couple of pieces of, pieces of paper. So we have a generator. I've written that it's a JavaScript generator. And the end goal is to let it be that if you get the game in, in the actual physical version, you also get the generator so you can generate more boards to play. Because it is one board per play. Um, end goal, we think, is probably a, pa a pack of like 100 of them on a pad um, with instructions on the back. And you just tear one off and go ahead and play it. Uh, also super portable, right? Because you can just take it yeah. with you. And you can really, honestly, play with a pen if you wanted to. You just shade the sections. Where's the fun in that? Exactly. <laughs> cutting cutting it's up much is much, much more fun. Um, the other cool thing that's cool about the prototypes, and we don't have a solution here, uh, is you also each start with a uh, secret creature, one that your opponent doesn't know about, so you don't, they don't know exactly what you're scoring. The secret creatures you can't see on the board until you hold it up to the light. That's awesome, people that can't see this at home. Um, so is that just a watermark, or is it a sticker over it? How do you... Um, so, that's, so it's actually two pieces of paper with the uh, hidden ones printed on the inside, and then I sandwich them together with glue, and my manufacturer says we can't do that. Well, I mean... So we'll find another... Things way. are coming along. I mean, just this past Gen Con, um, Fantasy Flight released their... I forget what they're called, but 
procedurally generated exactly. decks and stuff. So that seems to be a thing that's happening more and more now because the tech tools are catching up to the kind of design goals. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and this is a very straightforward JavaScript uh, PDF generating library um, that I hope to see in a lot of games from now on. Right. I can see tabletop RPGs generating not just randomly filled in character sheets, but like character sheets that have different options. Yeah. Um, that are just different each time you print them. Um, in addition to games like this, I can see games like this where you print the board and then play on it with pieces that you're not throwing away. In this game, of course, you cut it up and then you recycle it and play a different board, but it could come in a box with some pieces that you play on, on with the board, then you recycle the board and print another one. I'm intrigued. I'm going to sit down and play. Any contact info so people can follow along with the production. Yeah. So check us out at resonym.com. That's R-E-S-O-N-Y-M. We make all sorts of cool things, and this game, Continental Drift, is not going to be on the website quite yet because it's still a prototype and we're still working. Uh, but keep an eye. It'll be out eventually. Um, and you can also probably, you know, I might even go home and put up some PDFs for you people to be able to download them and try them out. Awesome. Thank you very much. Absolutely. I'm here with... Hi, I'm Owen Gottlieb, Assistant Professor of Interactive Games and Media at the Rochester Institute of Technology and the Founder and Lead Research Faculty at the Initiative in Religion, Culture and Policy at the RIT Magic Center. I'm Satch. And I'm Hansu. So tell us a bit about your game. The project that we've been working on for four years and we're so excited to have at the Boston Independent Festival of Games is the Lost and Found series. The Lost and Found series is about teaching medieval religious legal systems and in particular the pro-social aspects, what evolutionary anthropologists call the pro-social aspects of religion. So you may have heard negative things about medieval religious legal systems, but you may not have heard about collaboration, cooperation, and governance, all of these very important things that religious legal systems allowed for. Our games take place in Fustat, Old Cairo, in the 12th century, and it's a very interesting time of a crossroads between Islamic culture and Jewish culture and Christian culture. We have two games in the series so far, Lost and Found and Lost and Found, the Order in the Court. The first game is a strategy game based around, uh, it's a competitive and a cooperative game based around decision trade-offs to uh, help your community and helping your family. The goal of the game is to um, make the community flourish. So you want everyone to win, everyone you're playing with needs to win. But if you're only taking care of your community's needs and ignoring your family needs, then you will lose, but everyone else will win. So it's about balancing your resources. The second game is a party game, much like Apples to Apples, where a judge reads a actual a rule, court rule from 12th century, and everyone else has to use those story cards to come up with a backstory for why that case got to court in the first place. Why did why do two people go to court over a lost donkey or a, a dead? A dead chicken and the judge then decides who has the better story. Uh, people usually play this for humor and if people are interested on the back of these cards we have the actual uh, reason for why that court case happened. So it's facilitating learning through play. We have uh, citations as well for why this happened. This is uh, an RIT project. Uh, all the art is period accurate to the time period made by RIT students. Yeah, it took about four years of research with 30 faculty, undergrad and grad students at RIT. And uh, The Lost and Found series has received seed funding from Rochester Institute of Technology, the Golisano College at RIT, which is the Computing and Information Sciences College, the Office of the Vice President for Research. We also received funding from the National Endowment 
for the humanities for our mobile prototype. We have a mobile digital prototype of the first game, the strategy game Lost and Found. And for that project, we have funding, uh, had funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Awesome. That that might be one of the biggest teams to work on a game that I've ever heard of. That's, yeah. that's a lot of research. Yeah, so, yeah. so our research is us basically trying to translate 12th century like law book code into like readable English and we're consulting with a lot of uh, experts on this topic to make laws to, because we're trying to teach um, how law worked back in those days so we're trying to be as accurate as we can yeah it's not a perfect imitation we're doing a lot of interpretation from scholars who are actually actively researching the interpretation of this stuff so we're making sure as much as we can everything is accurate as we can possibly see fit and having all the team members do as much research as they can individually to make sure every depiction from art to the actual rulings is up to snuff. So what's it like doing a game that has that much background research? Because, I mean, as you might know, some games people do very little research and come up with some issues. So obviously your whole team is putting in a lot of effort in this. So what what drove you to do this? And what's it like having to put that much effort into the, the back work? The RIT Magic Center is a cutting-edge laboratory and also an LLC, Magic Spell Studios, a game studio. Uh, my group at the RCP, Initiative in Religion, Culture, and Policy, concentrates on building, designing, developing, and studying games and simulations for enhancing literacy in comparative religion, in studying and trying to understand how peoples hand down their culture and their cultural practices, and how new cultural practices come about. And our work is oriented towards policy impact, both in terms of educational policy or governmental policy. So yeah, it does take a lot of effort to go back in time and read all these texts and uh, make out what the law might have been trying to say, come up with that. But that's that's the cool part about this game is it's historically accurate and it's we are trying to learn instead of um, in some aspects it saves us trouble with coming up with our own terms. We're just trying to interpret it and make it fun and make it a learning experience for everyone. Well, as far as educational games go to, there's a lot of bad ones out there that just try to slam learning into a yeah. bad game mechanism. But this, it really sounds like the mechanisms of the game are tied into the learning. Right. So you learn by doing. So yes. has that been working out well for you? Yeah, so we're not actually trying to make you memorize stuff through games. Like, um, we're not, our main mechanic isn't to actually learn. We're, facil we're trying to facilitate learning through play. For example, our story for the background for the ruling cards, you don't actually have to come up with the historical reason. It's just if you're interested in that kind of stuff, you can read it but you can also choose to just completely ignore it and play for the fun factor of the game. So it was a lot of balancing between how do we make this game fun, but also a learning experience for people who are interested in that. So your, your goal was to make a fun game. Mm -hmm. So how hard is it balancing that? So I'll talk a little bit about the process that we use in the design studio. So at RCP, the Initiative in Religion, Culture, and Policy, we have a number of faculty members that work with students. So I specialize in a number of areas one is learning games, the other is religion and learning games. 
Uh, Ian Schreiber does core mechanics. He's a veteran of industry. We also work with faculty at a number of other universities and institutions like Philip Ackerman Lieberman at Vanderbilt University, Diane Moore at Harvard Divinity School, Rachel Wagner at Ithaca College, at, uh, Mohammed Shafiq at Nazareth, and Tariq El Gwahri at the Coexist Foundation, and a, a number of other faculty members as well. So we have really great resources and, and scholars uh, working with us in terms of both accuracy in terms of what we're depicting in terms of the legal systems, religious representation, and history um, all the way through the process. So the push-pull that's usually happening in the design studio is we'll do an iteration of the game that's oriented towards game mechanics that are engaging and fun. We base those in the idea that there is an essential learning behavior that we want learners to go through, then we build mechanics around that, and then we'll do a series of iterations to get those mechanics working. Then we'll come back and say, okay, well, are we on target with our essential learning behaviors? Then we'll do some iterations around making sure the essential learning behaviors are back on target. And so it's kind of a push-pull between the two because we're always dealing with two design problems at the same time, fun and engaging game, and that those engaging game mechanics engage players in what we're calling the essential learning behavior. So it's that push and pull. And that term essential learning behavior comes from work by Jan Plass at NYU and his colleagues there. And uh, Professor Schreiber and I, Ian Schreiber, and I are working and looking in particular at building learning mechanics inside of humanities games, games that deal with history and religion. Uh, whereas a lot of the work that I learned from Jan, uh, Professor Plass, Jan Plass at NYU, was often around uh, science and math. So what are ways that we can expand the research around these essential learning behaviors? So that's a little bit of the process that we use in designing these games. And so, like you said, you have two games here. What was, what was the reason behind doing two different style of games for basically the same theme? So once uh, uh, the first game, uh, Order in the Court, is a strategy game. It's uh, based around uh, about trade-off decisions between uh, what, how you want. It's about a community game. So about, it's all about how to take care of your community. The other game is a, just about, it's a party game, so it's a more uh, setting with a lot of people. The strategy game takes about 45 to 60 minutes to play versus the party game, which takes five minutes per round. So it facilitates learning much quicker, and it's dealing with two different aspects of lost and found objects. So it's teaching you two different, so it's one uh, based around court rulings versus other ones based around like what's moral what's the moral thing to do what's the right thing to do and how you help your neighbors to help the community flourish if you aren't helping anyone else and just taking care of yourself the players will lose and if the community goes destitute everyone loses so you're not helping one another so it's about teaching kind of teamwork versus other ones teaching how law worked back in 12th century yeah the main takeaway is of this is that one game through the mechanics is teaching how people lived with these legal ordinances basically because these laws are in place and through the mechanics of the strategy game we see how people need to act within the confines or outside the confines of the law to make sure everyone's doing well as opposed to order in the court which is the party game where you are instead learning more about why people thought mm -hmm. this way rather than how they reacted to it because at the end of each round 
everyone gets to see why this court order came into play in the first place. You get the historical accuracy, even if, well, your story may be complete nonsense. You still learn at the end of the day why people thought this way, as opposed to other, the other game where mm -hmm. the aspect is to act with accordance to why they thought this way. Mm -hmm. So it's different aspects to teach different, well, mechanics, or yeah. different mechanics to teach different aspects. Yeah. That's right, there it is. Our goal isn't to figure out, or our goal isn't, we're not claiming that we know how people thought in the 12th century, since that's very difficult to do. Our goal is to try to understand how these law codes work, so from history we can make future kind of thing. So we're not claiming to be like, this is how they thought in 12th century, we're just trying to come up with some rationale for how things might have took place um, to teach people about, to educate people about, like to the importance of legal uh, rel religious legal systems back in the days because that was the government back, back in the day. Awesome. So, uh, just one more time, contact info and you said it was already available, right? They can get it from the website? Sure. Yeah, so lostandfound.com lostandfoundthegame.com uh, has the game. You can buy it right from there. Yeah. And thank you. Thank you very much. Of course. I'd like to thank all of our Patreon supporters for helping support the show, especially our inventor-level supporters, Chris Turner, Alan D. Eckert, and 3D6Space. That's all for this episode. You can get the show notes for all episodes at theboardgameworkshop.com. Follow the show on Twitter at the BG Workshop. Join the show's Facebook group to discuss the episodes and support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash theboardgameworkshop. Thanks for listening.